If you're looking to share information about your latest project, share your latest business victory, or gain some solid contacts, be sure to join the Oceania Esports and Gaming Business Facebook group today. Welcome to episode 009 of Business in Games, also known as The Big Podcast. I'm your host as always, Chris Mayo-Smith. In this show, we chat about anything gaming and tech, tackling the big and small business topics. Today with us in episode 009, we have Emma Lowe-Russo, 20 years experience in traditional business and also seven years at Digivisor, where she's currently the CEO, living in Sydney with a passion for technology and innovation. Emma, thanks for making some time to visit us today. No, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. No problem at all. So, you know, we've we've alluded to this a little bit on social media and, and with announcing you as well. I guess you could say you're you're almost a bit of a a new breed coming onto the business in games. Being someone with you know, twenty years experience is is quite impressive and, and seven years at Digivisor, you know, running the show on the ground. So I guess, you know, we wanted to take a bit of that angle today and and have a chat to you, maybe a little bit more from the top down. Does that sound okay? Yeah, absolutely. So kicking straight into it, I just wanted to ask you a fairly generic and and uh, general question, which would be, in your opinion, what are two of the major components needed for overall growth in the Australian tech scene? I mean, I think the two key factors is you have to have a global mindset. So I think, you know, for Australia, if you look at the Australian population against the globe, it's 0.33%. So that's the first thing. So think globally in terms of where your customers, you know, your potential workforce, you know, your community. And then I think it's, you know, how do you invest in growth? And that's everything from the way you learn um, to, you know, how you think about your strategy and how you build, like for us as a tech company, you know, how you build your technology thinking of that wider audience right from the outset. And do you take many cues from from different countries in regards to Australia? You know, who who would you say that are some good test markets for us? I mean, I think, I mean, Australia is actually the best test market for globe. That's how I tend to look at it. Um, having managed a global organisation even prior to Digivisor, where 97% of revenues were earned overseas, like Australia helps you stay quite objective to the opportunities you see in America. Um, but also EMEA and Asia, and it allows you to sort of see these as, you know, massive opportunities, Asia being probably the one we see massive growth in. And so therefore, you know, a lot of future opportunity and we're best placed to be able to, to leverage them because we're, we're pretty friendly with all the, all the countries, which isn't the case for a lot of others in terms of their ability to get into each of those regions. Yeah. And, and looking, looking more of a to, I guess a traditional business sense. You know, you you mentioned uh, Asia as a whole. Do you think mm. that that maybe some of these companies are putting a little bit too much emphasis on China specifically, or not enough? And and where do you see the growth opportunities in China for more Westernized countries to to expand into? I mean, I think you know, having you know, I've done actually a lot of work in China um, over my working career. The first thing is, I mean. It's got the biggest population. So um, if you think about things like IQ being evenly distributed across people, a lot of investment, and they're very serious about the way they invest because, you know, I guess it's one advantage of, of um, you know, a, a government-dictated um, economy in the sense that they can make a decision, which they did about 10 years ago, to move from imitation to innovation and they'll just change everything they'll invest everything from education all the way through so if you have a look at the 
you know, the population plus the investment, the willing to, willingness to change without all the kind of history and delays that happen, which often, you know, come out of companies who made decisions maybe, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago in technology and are not actually able because they just refuse, you know, to, to unlock their, their kind of enterprise systems or their, you know, their, their tech that they chose a while ago, whereas these new countries like China are just, you know, um, ad- adapting new technology and creating it at such a rapid rate. Um, and so what we're really seeing, I think, from a China perspective is what, where they were the the kind of the cheaper labour, that's all now gone into the other countries in Asia and we're sort of watching this, you know, um, arbitrage going through and it actually, I mean, for me, it's it's a big warning sign to Australia to to really invest in, you know, in IP and innovation um, and our technology because it's the thing that's going to give us the best kind of growth opportunity and keep our relevance and ensure that we've got access to the same, you know, customer base and um, labor force, um, you know, that everyone else does. It's the thing that normalizes everything. So, yeah, look, I mean, China's amazing. I don't think there's at all enough emphasis put in terms of the impact and the powerhouse that they represent. Equally, I'd say the same in India in terms of the investment in uh, in IP, so where they didn't have the physical structure, whereas China's kind of got both that IP and the the, the physical um, you know, capability. India is probably behind on the physical capability, not far behind actually, but but still a little bit further behind. But you know, again, massive population um, with a lot of investment around you know IP. So yeah, like I, t- t- to me, it's just it's not overspoken. It's more like what do we do with it? Yeah. So taking that into account, you know, you you mentioned Australia specifically fitting into that, and and that's mm. something that I wanted to expand on a bit was, you know, looking looking five years into the future in the digital space or, or maybe even in the general technology and manufacturing space, how do you think that Australia needs to adapt and and take an approach to be able to, I guess, you know, hop on and, and enjoy the wild ride? Do you think that's something that the government really needs to step onto or is it more up to the companies to start pushing it from the bottom up? Look, to be honest, I think it's both. I mean, I think, again, if we have a look at our tiny population against this big global kind of, you know, um, force, market force that we have to engage with, then it requires really smart investment um, in terms of everything, again, from our own education system, but the way that we foster innovation. There's been a lot of work in the startup scene, but it hasn't actually transpired into early growth and next stage companies and how they can be helped in terms of you know their ability to to reach and go overseas, when you look five years forward and you realise just how pervasive and easy and the advantages you know countries have in terms of you know um, you know mobile devices, you know fast processing, you know much faster um, broadband and and you know Wi-Fi connectivity, you know which is a real disadvantage to Australia. Like I, I think these things are all going to, going to play and it requires investment. I think corporate Australia can do a lot more in terms of their investment and support in taking those startup companies through that growth stage. Um, but, it, you know, it's going to come down to good ideas. Good ideas are the ones that are going to go and we're going to see that democratisation of what's going on in terms of where those powerhouses are with, you know, things like blockchain coming in. Um, and, you know, the ability for anyone really to, to be able to trade their information in exchange, um, you know, create a transaction where it's it's now outside of the powerhouses of banks and all sorts of things. Like there's so much disruption that's going to come. Um, so I do, I do believe it will be technology and that 
therefore investment is absolutely required in this space to to enable Australia to have a have a role here. Um, but you know, good ideas will always will always you know will always win um, if you're being customer focused and you're thinking around them. Yeah, for sure. And expanding a little bit more, you, you mentioned investment a lot, and and also startups being something that you're well versed in and know a lot about. I wanted to touch more on the local ecosystem of startups. We see a bit of a war, I guess, recently of, of Victoria versus New South Wales. And I wanted to get a bit of your opinion on that. You know, if I was a, a startup looking to open up uh, in the technology space, what are the advantages of New South Wales versus Victoria? Does it matter? Is, is location a massive thing in such a digital age? How do you view it? Look, I mean, I think there's a debate or a conversation that can be had around where governments are playing to invest and create um, those opportunities to help foster innovation from an idea through to, you know, um, you know, early growth and and you know, expansion. Um, but my personal view on that is like it's just not a conversation we should be having because it's Sydney versus Melbourne is not whether you're going to be able to win on a global stage or not. It's going to come down to have you created something that is really interesting and viable. Funding will always um, be easier when you do have something that people really care about. Um, so the more you think about how you're going to create your customer base and self-fund, the rest follows, and that can be done from anywhere. Yeah, so speaking on the self-funding, and that's something that, you know, I guess a, a lot of the the people in business and games are still in the investment stage, they're still in the startup stage, they're still, for lack of a better term, burning cash. How how important is it for you to forecast exactly when you can be fully self-sustainable and start paying back the investments, no matter how big or small? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've got a view that you should try and self-fund as, you know, bootstrap as much as you can because it forces you to do all the things that you hear is, you know, best, you know, all the successful companies who, you know, got their minimum viable product to market, you know, as early as they could then built with customer feedback using data as their key points to be able to, to choose where to invest and, and to grow from. Um, but there's nothing more validating in terms of what you're trying to do than a customer who's prepared to pay for it. And, and as much as they pay up front, um, because that's when you really know your value, you can bootstrap and actually, you know, create something of, of value that makes funding actually easier. You have to be able to forecast. There's no way you can't have financial now. So I would say, you know, the reason why we're still in the game, like when we started seven years ago, there were there were plenty of players. It's not like social wasn't an area people could see opportunity in, but it's massive data. You've got, you know, um, very tricky APIs across all the social platforms. Um, you're trying to extract value out of it and create something new that doesn't exist before. Um, and the easiest of which, why there's a lot of solutions that were out there previously, which was all volume-based, how many mentions of but organisations don't care about that. They care about people, how many customers and how is anything that you're investing in helping them acquire more customers or drive more value or to retain them um, so that or know more about them. That's kind of what what that's what organisations invest in because that's, that's the two kind of drivers for them, grow their business or save money. Um, but you can only save money for a certain amount of time you have to grow business. So, hmm. um yeah, look, you know, being strong on financials is absolutely critical. You, If you take money, you should expect that you should be creating a return, but then, you know, you should be doing that for yourself too, right? Why would you be in business if you weren't actually building out a strategy that was going to ultimately, you know, um, deliver on 
growth and a return for yourself and for all the people that you want to um, employ and the customers, you know, and of course your investors. Like that's what, why would you be in business if you if you weren't kind of driven that way to create create something of value. Yeah. So, so taking investment and, and, um, you know, financial growth aside, how, how do you at Digivisor or even you personally measure success within your company? And this also touches on a question from at jam underscore pulse that he asked on Twitter and he, and he stated, you know, metrics are always a big part of working in digital space. How, how do you evaluate your success? So, I mean, I think I'll just separate the two questions because I, I agree that metrics for a customer is absolutely critical and ultimately it's how does investment connect to acquisition of customers or, you know, driving greater value or retaining them. So you need to measure things that actually lead to that and you just see everything as a ultimately sales as a funnel, um, how many people are at the top, how are they converting through it and, then, you know, how many are converting at the bottom and then what's the value and um, you know, lifetime value of that customer, like how are you extracting there? So you need to measure every aspect of that. The thing about digital is it's really easy to measure. So you should be doing a lot of measurement of every aspect of that. Um, and then, you know, doing more of what works and less of what doesn't. And it sounds like that's a really simple thing, but it's actually not many companies do it because they don't connect that end-to-end ecosystem. They don't measure it effectively. They don't spend time, um, you know, doing that analytics and that optimization around, you know, that simple do more of what works and less of what doesn't. Mm. So but as a as a company, what do I measure success on? I mean, ultimately I learned a very long time ago that to grow a company, what you actually do um, or how to do it, the secret is, you know, hire the absolute best people you can and then grow them. And if you grow people, you grow your company. So I measure my success more about the type of people, their personal growth, and then what goals are they kicking? Because if the more you see yourself as a leader of leaders um, and, you know, their job is to, well, my job is to grow an organisation that can grow an organisation and can grow people, then that's what will grow grow Digivisor. So I, that, that, that attracting the right people, making sure that they're growing, um, their you know, love and passion for what they do, like their measures for me much more than other things. But I still measure that funnel in that same way that I would say we, we measure for our customers too. Yeah, and some of what you touched on there seems to be quite a lot in agreement with a, a financial guy on a personal level who I read a little bit about called Dave Ramsey based in the US and and he's seen a lot of success you know giving financial advice and, and working in that scene and he's got an interesting book that I like to read and and pass on to some of my friends called Entree Leadership and it talks mm. about some of those same things like you said you want to you know create a team of, of people who are who can also be leaders and you don't want mm. you know he's 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 a big person on kind of using special quotes and phrases and he said you don't want someone who just wants a job you want someone who mm. can turn up and and really you know pour their heart and soul into the company and and have the person at the top properly recognize them for that and and not cap them too hard or you know really listen and work with them and and that's a, a kind of a loose segue I guess into some more administ uh, like administration type things that I wanted to ask you in your position if mm-hmm. if I was a person looking to grow my career, say, say I'm working in a company in a low to mid-level management, maybe a team manager position. What are some of the, some of the crucial skills or the crucial conversations I should be having to be able to get myself into the director type level or even eventually into the C type level being CEO, COO, et cetera? Sure. So I think, I mean, I think the first thing just overall is 
be less worried about job titles and what it is that you're doing and actually focus more on how are you adding value. And for us, it's anyone that can apply their smarts to any opportunity and make things happen and be a really decent person um, to work with, right? So even we hire smart, talented, get things done, not an asshole, fast learner, right? That's kind of what's required. So I think my advice to anyone is to actually just focus on value, to own it, to feel responsible for it, to make stuff happen. Um, And the more people you can engage on your journey who um, want to be on that same, you know, like let's make this happen. And it can be from something that doesn't feel like we've got someone who just put their hand up to create a training program and just took it on and it's like this awesome and it's always captured, you know, Facebook Live, in our channels, you know, doing great things. And it's just it like no one asked for that to happen, but it's enormous value. And that person is 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 someone that, you know, you you want to recognize. So um that can be at any level. So I would say, how did I get to where I got to today? It's because I, I very early learned that, you know, take some risk by identifying where those opportunities are, be prepared to put my hand up, you know, not point out the opportunity, but actually point out what the strategy and what I was going to do to make that happen. Or actually what I got really good at was just do it. Um, so I'm very much a believer of the, you know, ask for forgiveness, not permission. So just create results and the rest (laughs) follows um but you have to be a good person you have to be a good leader it's not a it's not a you know um you don't win by being very self-focused you win by being team focused and how how you're bringing people on in that journey um but the leaders and the ones at the top are the ones that actually took that risk and were prepared to to kind of take something from a from an idea all the way through to execution and know every aspect of that, be able to hold vision, you know, strategy and really awesome execution as well. So looking into, I guess, more of a, more of a HR and hiring type thing, and, and this could be a two, a two part question or from two different directions, depending on which way you want to take it. But how, how can people, I guess, become more comfortable talking about the intricate business topics with their with their direct manager or manager above that? Is it really up to those kind of managers to start seeking out and building those professional relationships with the staff? Is it up to the staff to step up or is it a conversation that they should both be having to push it forward together? I would say, I mean, in, in an ideal world, right, it's both of them, but do I, like, in this situation, I would be saying absolutely take ownership of your career and your own happiness and your professional development. Um, you know, only have conversations you want to have. So I, I never entered a meeting ever in my life and and worked you know, with the agenda that was put in front of me if I didn't think that was the most important thing that needed to be addressed. Um, so, you know, using those opportunities, but I never wasted anyone's time and I was always well-researched. Um, so if I knew this was the only time I was going to see the CEO then, and I had a great idea and it was solving the thing that the, the CEO was looking to solve, then I would always say, look, you know, understand you want to talk about X, Y, Z. I can answer that separately, but what I really want to do is to use this time to share this opportunity and what we can do about it and here's some early data or whatever, you know, and just make it happen. And you can influence conversations very quickly and easily if you are actually really mindful around what's actually the most important thing here, what's going to drive the greatest value um, and, you know, how much ownership have you got on, on, on that. Um, 
So, you know, I mean, the way I start most meetings is, are you happy? <laughs> what can we do? What's working? What's not? Now tell me what, what's on your mind. You know, like pushing it into just completely new territory. Um, and then, you know, a good leader will then make good, you know, make very fast decisions. So you don't want to make and wait for the perfect world. What you want is to be in a perfect situation where if you've hired talented people from the outset and they've got a great idea, um, then my view is, you know, say yes to as many of them as you can. Um, and the only thing that I'm being mindful of is, you know, we still have limited resources, time's the, the common factor for everyone. So it still needs to be the the most important thing for people to be working on. But, you know, how can you empower people to actually just allow them to do it? Because, you know, you know, if you've got a learning mindset, mistakes don't last for too long and you can learn a lot from them and so you just keep iterating in an environment of just make stuff happen and expanding on the expanding on the fact that you were saying about um having limited time you know you're only human as is any other ceo um at least we believe so uh (laughs) how how do you manage your professional time how are there are there some specific tips that you could give to some people? Because it's obvious that most people within the tech scene, especially within startups, are pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, like you said, um, mm. looking at seed funding, you know, pulling all nighters, trying to get investments and things like that. How would you uh, give them some advice? So I think you know the secret to success is playing a long game. Um, so even though you might be working very hard, just always make sure it's the most important thing to work on, and that you are being really um, careful and mindful about, about every aspect of your life. So you do have to consider your health, your relationships, yeah. Because if if everything is in harmony and you're feeling very congruent, like this is who I am. I want, you know, I'm, I've got three kids. I've been married for 27 years. Still madly in love with my husband, and I've been very successful in my career and travelled and done all the things that I, I wanted to do. But it didn't happen. It came about because it's what I really want. So that's the first thing: do what you want, do what you're passionate about. Um, and then be really mindful of how to make that work um, and only use your time on the things that are going to have the biggest impact. So planning, taking time out, um, keeping all those things in balance, it actually makes you a much more powerful and effective person because it, it also, when you step out of what you're doing, you actually come back more objective right from the outset. So just knowing when to put your foot on and off or at least just getting yourselves into those rhythms Um you're better for it than just running hard. So turning turning the conversation a little bit more towards Digivisor, um, mm-hmm. how how did the conversation come about for Digivisor to move into more of the gaming and the esports type realms? So we're very data-driven, um, very customer-driven and very data-driven. So everything we do is really based on understanding what people care about first and foremost. So um, for, for, for seven years we've been looking at, you know, where people talk, engage, share, um, you know, what's actually really going on in terms of people's digital footprint. Gaming was a passion point that we identified very, very early in terms of it being what people cared about. So we identified that always in terms of here are plays that we could, um, you know, help our customers or, or brands understand how they should in, approach that market. So it's always been around the the customer first or, you know, people first. What do they care about? Where are they, you know, and then make your play around that. And I think we've just seen this be, A, you know, hugely successful 
um, growing, you know, rapidly, dramatically. Um, you know, the market is is massive in terms of, you know, 109 billion globally, 51.2 billion of that's in APAC, you know, 10.6 million gamers here in ANZ, you know, worth about 1.2 billion. Like it's a, it's a massive space. So I think as early as we could see this was a passion point, you, you need to thought, talk authentically you need to to understand that market. So, you know, that that's also been, I guess, a secret in Digivisor's success is hiring really awesome people. Um, and we we've done that. And, and you know, in particular, um, you know, people like Fid and, you know, um Jack Hutto, pe- people that that you you know you know and are across. Like we brought them in as early as we could because A, we could see they were great people because we were watching them. We could see they created great content, you know, they you know had high credibility, but they could teach us how to do it, and you know that's been a key part of it. And then you know, working on how to make that work for our customers, we've been very successful in in proving that out, knowing what works, and again that high level and genuine care about you know gamers, um, and ensuring everything that we do is very authentic and and caring about them, you know the influences that engage with them. Um, and, you know, making it work for brands so everyone wins in that. Um, so being mindful of that. But, you know, it starts with seeing the opportunity, the data first and hiring awesome people um, and then, you know, being very, very respectful, mindful and just measuring what works, do more of it and less of what doesn't. So we're just seeing it as a really big play and we're, we're investing more and more in space. So, you know, wanna, I want to take one specific word out of there that you said, which is influencers being probably the hottest topic in anything gaming and tech right now. And and it's something that Digivisor has been working a lot with, especially uh, pushing through Tainted Minds, picking up a lot of influencer people and, and Hutto doing a bit himself and Fid being so well-versed in that scene. I wanted to gain your experience coming from more traditional mindset of how you see the growth, but also the sustainability of influencers and how you can manage the success and and manage the growth and, and manage it on a business sense compared to, I guess, your traditional where you could think about TV ads, radio ads, banner advertising, or even sponsoring traditional sporting teams. How how do you see the scene as a whole progressing? How do you see it growing? And, and do you see it as a, as a long-term game or do you see it more as possibly a thing that might grow, shrink or whatever? And I understand that's, that's quite a large question, but I feel like it's, it's maybe not something I can ask directly or, or put into some easy words, but I'd like to see where you run with this. Yeah, sure. So, I, th- I mean, I think the first thing is anyone, like traditional media has died, right? It doesn't exist. There's there's some bleeding companies left, right and centre that we know about. I mean, Channel 10's in administration. Who watches Free to Air, really, in terms of it being the thing that captures, you know, the majority of people? So if you have a look at the most viewed sporting in fact, the most viewed TV event in Australia is AFL Grand Final. There was 3.5 million people who watched it last year. Um, IEM that was here, what, two months ago um, had 8 million live viewers during that event, just comparably. Last year's Rio Olympics, there were more people watching Twitch than there were the whole Rio game. So, What's happened is just people have changed, right? Marketing hasn't changed, but the customer has changed. And the customer is like we're curating and creating this this personalised view of the world around what, what they care about. Now, what they do is they choose to follow people. So people trust people, they follow people, and they follow the people that create the best content. 
Now, that's what we're putting a label called influencers, but these people are just awesome creators and, you know, they understand that community better than anyone else and they'll win people by being the best at creating, you know, um, a great experience and great content and things that people, you know, want to engage in. Um, And when they stop doing it, those people won't be there. So to me, this is just the future, right? People follow people, people trust people, people trust the... um, you know, the recommendations that come from them because they're being held accountable by their networks. You know, people are smart, so they know if it's bought, they know when it's authentic. So we're, we're a big advocate of very authentic engagement. So always find that alignment. Make sure the the win for the community is there first, the influencer is there, and, the, and, you know, then the brand. Because if all that is working, then there's actually just some really awesome content that comes out of it. Like there's a great experience that gets created because of that. So um, this this mass kind of personalization of everyone choosing to be what, wherever and watch and engaging with what they care about, that's just going to continue and it's just going to get easier and easier for them to be able to manage their own kind of viewing, you know, um, habits of, around picking where they go and what they want to see and watching, you know, whenever they want to. Um, as I said, I think, you know, blockchain is going to actually even change where money is being exchanged and value in terms of how all this is all going to exchange over time. But in terms of the creator, the people that people will follow, um, there's always going to be a place for them and brands are going to learn, like, why try um, to do it themselves when, you know, the best way that they probably can do that is by engaging the people who know that audience, you know, best and are, are the great, you know, creators. And they can, they can inspire, they can invest, they can fund, they can help amplify, they can do all sorts of things to help that that content creation um, and, you know, and people will be smarter in the way that they will align themselves because their audience will want credible um, connections. So they'll only choose to, you know, be an ambassador or work with brands that they care about that their, their audience cares about. So I, I just think this is it's just democratisation. It's just people will go where they care. They vote with their thumbs um, and it'll come down to whatever is the most frictionless experience for them. So looking into esports and and content creators as a whole, coming from a, a more traditional business background as yourself, what are what are some of the major takeaways that the esports scene can use? What are, what are some of the major tips from traditional esports that from sorry that from traditional technology that esports can take use of and and learn about to be able to grow? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the there's like a natural thing going on, which is like the the people that are in this space, the esports teams and, you know, the great content creators, like they've naturally gone um, to play to their kind of their passion and their strength and they're they're, they're creating great, you know, outcomes. Um, I feel like, you know, there are brands and kind of the old model that is actually taking advantage of perhaps the fact that this is quite new and immersive and that's why we want to step in and create a much fairer and, you know, great experience around people. It's our view and because we've, we've proven and seen this in these models that, that, that we've run for our, for all our customers and while we're investing further in this, uh, you know, ourselves as Digivisor is that if if it's just a really awesome place where everything's really transparent, it's all about, you know, the people and the, and the content, then it will actually create better outcomes and that includes the commercials that sit behind it. So I think it's early stage. As I said, I think, you know, be careful, get advice, you know, um, you know, back to your question, whether it's a gamer, whether it's an esports team, whether it's a startup business, you know, getting a mentor, someone who's experienced, 
Um, and that's that's again where, where we're bringing a lot of business experience into this space, which has been highly valued. And, and we, you know, we just want it to work. Yeah. And do you think that there's much that traditional business can take from from the new angle of esports? Is it are there some specific pointers, or is it more maybe just a reinvigoration of traditional business? Well, I mean, my view is. To be honest, I, I don't actually hold this view of traditional business and new business or, you know, traditional agencies and digital agencies. I just think there just is and it's the world is the way it is and those that get that, that understand digital and tech and this space is just like at the heart of everything um, where no one owns the brand, only the, you know, the consumer owns the brand. And I think like mm. people who play in that space just get that the world is different and create models that, that make that work. Um, I think, you know, what we're seeing and the way we help to another question I think um, that you asked before was like how does this get measured and valued? Yeah, earned media has got a value. It's actually greater than anything that you would buy through traditional media. So as the social platforms make it more and more expensive to reach the audience like, you know, Facebook, great platform, awesome, but, you know, you have to pay to play. You have to pay to reach even the audience that you organically and who chose and actually cared about you and chose to follow you. Mm. You still have to pay to reach them. You know, that cost to reach them can be earned through, you know, where we will continue to see lots of platforms come into play, you know, um, and people will choose to engage there and that view or that engagement, that has a that has a value but person to person when someone then says something awesome about your brand like that that's worth more than if you paid through a net because you've got you know like a testimonial and advocacy and ambassadorship you know um you know credibility building to to that statement but the views that engagement there's value there and i think that that's where there'll be a bit more sophistication over time where brands will go okay i get that this is worth investing in because you know i'm not, i i spent it elsewhere and i'm getting less and less engagement um, and then here's these new areas and these new passion points and these new ways that i i can you know get my you know um, you know brand into market then i need to value it in the same way yeah and it's it's interesting and and you know dare i say refreshing to see someone in your position with with a company such as Digivisor looking at this as you know just the next the next part of business not as a new business new media old media and and understanding about the differences and such do you do you think that we'll start to see um almost a new breed or a new fresh lot of companies come around in in 5 years when people more people start to cotton onto this idea and and other people don't innovate what do you think the the timeline is based around if you're not in if you're not in this, you know, quote unquote, new media of influencers and, and Facebook and et cetera, and attaching to the old, what do you think the timelines around those old companies fading out and, and the newer ones coming in or the ones who refuse to innovate, I guess, fading out? To, to be honest, I, I think it, the, you know, the writing would be on the wall now and they probably don't have much more than a window of, you know, five years if that, and they could have already signed their death warrant. Um, that global you know, empowered digital increasing wealth that's actually, you know, driving the growth and why, you know, Asia in particular is such a such a, a big and amazing growth market. But, you know, I mean, there's, you know, the, the brick countries as well. I mean, there's so many kind of huge growing, you know, um, and higher per capita in terms of, you know, income per capita that's going on. Like, we're not even close to seeing maturity. There's so much opportunity here. So 
um, it will be disrupted. It won't be the way we understand it today. As I said, you know, that, that whole democratisation of where any platform that's bringing people who, have, you know, the supply and demand together, like, you know, people will keep coming up with awesome things that people will want. Um, and so, you know, it'll be choosing if you're on the end of you've got something awesome, then you're always going to make more money than the platform, but the platform that connects the two will be the next one that makes the money. Um, and, you know, it, that that's basically where money will be made in the future. Yeah, so, you know, let's let's take this one back a little bit more and we'll, we'll take another step, I guess, towards more you yourself. And, you know, looking through a lot of your experience uh, and, and having a, a quick LinkedIn stalk, I guess, for lack of a lack mm-hmm. of a better term, uh, it's it's become quite obvious that you're a very experienced speaker in the way you present yourself. How important do you think it is sitting on the other side of the fence of that? How important is it for someone to attend seminars for those looking to learn, not taking it? Let's let's not take into account networking as part of that. Yeah. Look, I think the key word there was learn and I think that is actually the objective that that people should should you know choose more than anything and then it's like where are they going to get the best value in learning. Um so for me like I find it harder to get value out of a seminar or conference than I used to say when I was younger in my career and you know everything was new and learning. Um but I listen to podcasts so like I every car trip when I'm going somewhere or back, that's my choice of medium because I can be learning. I read ferociously. Um, you know, I I I I chosen my who I follow in social to to be my best kind of curator and the first to pick up the best type of articles so I know what's going on. I watch where investment is, so I know kind of where people are kind of making bets around the future. Um, so I think the key thing is to learn. Where you learn has completely changed. And I actually think the online world just gives so much um, insight and learning um, that, you know, it's always probably going to be a better return than actually physically being some somewhere. But I think, you know, that network effect of actually talking to people um, getting their direct experience um, where you've got a chance to, especially anything that's got audience question-based, so meetups, et cetera, great learning ground, um, like those types of things, I'd be like, yeah, you know, make sure you do those things because, you know, you can you can learn a lot from just somebody's true personal experience in how they overcame a particular, you know, situation that maybe you're facing. Um as well as, you know, the, the, the bigger that you have that, that network, the more likely that that returns for you. If you're a giver in any network, which is a, a key to a network, right, you have to give, then it's amazing how it returns at later points. So if you're, if you're looking to partner with someone or, or hire someone new, how, how much stock or importance do you put into finding someone who's passionate and experienced in the scene versus who maybe has more history and more education? So I, I am entirely about are they smart, talented, get things done, you know, not an asshole and a fast learner and how they show that, I couldn't care less about their degree or their work experience. Like I'll offer what I look for is how entrepreneurial were they in their thinking, how out of, out of square, how do they answer questions that really talk about the way that they make decisions and weigh up risk, what are they most proud of, 
you know, passions are, are important, like because clearly we're, we're, we play in the digital space. Like if anyone who is not in this space in any way, like if you were going for a job at Digivisor and you didn't have any social channels and you never created any content, like that's not going to bode well. Um, so even I'm doing a, a big hire at the moment through Asia and, you know, I, I deliberately advertised in social platforms because I only want people who are going to see that in social platforms as opposed to traditional job boards because it's like why would I get someone who's going to tell me they're that whereas I can learn everything about them um, and they're going to find me through using social in the first instance. Mm, so, so what you're saying is don't lie on your resume. <laughs> well, the, well, it's like, you know, LinkedIn, there's so much credibility um, through how many people are connected to someone and what they say about themselves because if people make stuff up, um, then, you know, like they'll get caught out and, you know, they, they just won't have the quality of connections um, that you will see in someone who is who's, who's authentic. So. How much stock do you think someone should should put into making connections and networking with the industry? Um, I think you know I wanted to poise this question to you more as less of a less of just a generic yes, you should network because it's obvious mm. that you need to network mm. within any industry. But what are some specific tips and and examples that you can give to people who are looking to you know grow their contact book a bit more? Well, I mean, I mean, I'm so first of all, I think you know. Follow people that you think are interesting and then see who they follow and follow, you know, so you can kind of learn a lot around you know, people who've got, got places and, and they'll, they'll share, you know, you can look at their connections as well um, or what they're engaging with. So there's a lot to learn, I think, around that way um, that helps you learn. I think, you know, for me I've used LinkedIn right from the start and Twitter and Facebook um, and Instagram, but, you know, I've, I, I very much use those social networks to be able to connect with the right people. So so Digivisor, we we did bootstrap, we did later get funding, um, but we bootstrapped at the start and, you know, it was through the corporate just finding people of the right right titles and the right organisations, um, you know, leveraging, you know, relationships I already had from, from previous corporate experience, but just making those connections and then sharing value. So making sure that you're not just, asking for something, but you're actually sharing insights and tips and things that actually make you a good person to follow and connect with. Um, so I've found that strategy is, is, has been really important to, you know, grow my influence personally, my ability to hire, my ability to, you know, generate leads, um, particularly from an employment perspective. So out of, we've got 55 employees and only seven of them we paid a recruiter for. The rest have come through our social networks um, or, you know, where I put the call out on social and then, you know, the network has done the rest in terms of their sharing or their recommendation. So when when you are a startup and you're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and looking into funding or, or self-funding or seed funding, what are some of your major tips for staff retention? How do you keep staff on board and and aligned with your vision and strategy? So I think, I mean, the first thing is the vision is key, right? So you have to, if you can't bring people in right from the outset who really believe and want to to make what it is that you, you're hoping to make happen, happen, then it will never happen. So that's the first thing. I mean, in starting Digivisor, we had sweat for equity right from the outset. So anyone who was kind of working before we even had made our money 
um, we're sharing in whatever the future value of that, you know, um, could represent. Um, but then, then as we kind of grew, like it, it has to, if you're attracting people and they've got bills and families and stuff, you have to pay, um, you know, you have to be reasonably, you know, positioned in the marketplace. So then you got to look at other things because it can't just be about money. It still comes back to vision, but mostly it's going to be around the culture you've created, the values you've created, you know, points like flexibility and other things that make it a great place. So people value those things because they know how hard it was if they didn't have that in their previous roles. Um, and then, you know, then handing over things like the culture and, um, what we do and what we prioritise to to employees. It's like, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. Like don't come with a problem, only come with what you want and what you want the future to be and what you want your career to be and then just make that happen. Um, and that's pretty well been the way we've hired the talent that, we've ha- that we have because it's like just make stuff happen. We'll, we'll, I'll support you, I'll make it happen, um, but mostly because all I'll be doing is focusing on how do I help you make it happen. So when when someone's looking into creating some personal or professional goals for themselves, do you do you believe that there's any specific healthy ways or unhealthy ways to think about that? Should should people be thinking about and and you have kind of answered this question before? Should people be thinking about uh, job titles? Should they be thinking about positions where to live, salary ranges, or should it be a little bit more generic? Or does it change person to person, industry to industry? I mean, you. My 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 true answer to that, and I've touched on it through through a number of these questions, is just really focus on value because I've 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 in my career I've moved jobs I'd never chased the money but I always earned it, um, and you know ended up in amazing amazing kind of opportunities um, because I created them and I felt responsible for creating them. So I think you know for me, you know if you're unhappy and you're in a situation where you can't you truly genuinely feel like you can't change what that environment is, then take responsibility and go find an environment that will give that to you. But don't think it comes from anyone else. Like your future and your future success, and particularly as the world is changing, is going to be like you are the only one that's going to be able to create your future. No one can see the future. You can't pick an education when you leave school and think that's the thing that's going to serve you well. It's a mindset. It's like the more Mm. you can focus on that growth mindset, the more you can, you know, um, look at the way that you identify what are fixed kind of aspects of the things that are in front of you and what are variables so you can always play with the variables and just keep focusing on what do people care about, what do organisations care about, you know, and aligning yourself to that because if it's what you care about and what they care about, it's like anything can happen. Yeah, so, you know, wrapping this up a little bit more as we've been going on for a little bit of time now, how how do you find the workload set in your role? Do you think it's, is it demanded by yourself? Is it set by the industry or is it a bit of a mix? Look, I mean, I, I, I think in my early years of career it was, I've always worked very, very hard and, you know, I'm prepared to work whatever it takes and, you know, work, work crazy hours. Um, that I used to think maybe it was like the organisation or the industry that I was working for. But the truth is I've learned it's me. So I I know I dictate what I do and how I work and the hours that, that I'm putting in. I'm very mindful now of keeping everything. Like I never wanted this to be at the expense of relationships or my health um, or actually my ability to bring my best. 
Um, so, you know, to me, that is the key thing. How do I deliver my best? So I, I work still crazy hours. I, 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 I invest more into this than, um, you know, than someone that's probably just happy to take a, take a salary. Um, I, I'm still not earning what I was earning back in corporate world, but if you look at the value of the company, I've created more value. So at one point, you know, someday in the future that will be realised. Um, but am I happy? Am I loving it? Have I kept everything together? Have I built something I'm really proud of? You know, am I still inspired to get up every day? Um, would I still choose to do this over anything else? Like, you know, 150%, 1,000 times over. So, um yeah, look, I yeah, I I just I, I just really think for people they've just got to just feel like they really own what it is that they they want to do and and just take steps. Don't wait; it's no one else's responsibility. Just do it. And touching on like you said about corporate world versus working on your own thing, what are some questions that someone should ask themselves uh, when you know if they're considering? okay, I'm, I'm in a mid-level or high-level management job. I'm looking to open up my own business, either in that scene or a separate scene. What are some of the major things that people should consider before taking the leap? So I think the first thing is like what what can you really live on um, and then what really matters financially to you. So for me, like I was prepared to risk my house. I was prepared to risk a lot of financial security and a lot of income um, but when I actually really brought it down to what I cared about, like it wasn't those things. And I was actually very fortunate because when I made the decision um, to leave corporate to come, I'd, I'd actually decided anyhow to kind of really think about doing my own thing. So I packed um, my husband and my kids up when we went around Australia in a Winnie Bago. Um, and, you know, the kids weren't allowed to take toys because we just didn't really have the space. There was five of us in this Winnebago. Mm. But it was, like, amazing because I realised we were so incredibly happy. Um, you know, we, we, we didn't have any perks. We didn't hardly spend any money. It was all very much just, you know, beach and barbecue. Um, and, and it was just, it was very liberating. So I, I knew then, like, it, it you know, I could really change my view of what was important and what were the, um, I don't know, trappings of wealth or, you know, this desire or, or whatever you think is success. And I knew that really for me it was could I build a, could I build a global company and that's what I, I'm building and, um, and I'm prepared to risk everything. So I think, you know, coming back to your question, are people like, are they happy? Do they want to do it? Are they prepared to risk everything? Um, but. Are they 100% committed? Because if they're not 100% passionate and 100% committed and prepared to do everything to make that work, then it won't work. And, you know, you know, I, I literally went to that situation and I, it's like I digivised. I had to make money. I had three kids, you know, an over-million-dollar mortgage on my house. Um, you know, like it's it, – it's our lifestyle is really expensive and it's like I had to make money. I had to find a way to make money. There was no safety net. Yeah, exactly. So, so you do. Yeah, and, and you know, that, that goes back to exactly what you were saying, right, and what I what I echoed about, you know, the Dave Ramsey on Australia leadership and, and looking to, I guess, would you agree in saying that you want to see a bit of yourself in the staff that you work with? Um, I would like to think that I would like to think anybody who works here leaves with an amazing experience and entrepreneurial mindset. And I actually hope to make anyone who works here also really wealthy. So, um, 
I don't know that I'm looking for myself. I, I wouldn't say I'm not looking for myself because those characteristics of just, you know, wanting to, to kind of own the future by taking responsibility and just making stuff happen. Um, and then, you know, like obviously I wouldn't hire someone that had those characteristics that didn't buy into our vision. So they've got to actually first of all believe in that um, and then really take that ownership, you know, um, like feel responsible for helping make that happen and then, you know, rewarding them for it. So I want difference. I want diversity. We're incredibly diverse in terms of the countries, the age, the gender. Um, if you look at even the way we work, it's quite quite different. It's very, very um, empowered, distributed, you know, Slack's our main communication channel. We don't use email. We try and break whatever the normal rules are. Um, but, you know, if we if it doesn't work, then we'll keep changing it. So that's the other thing. And that that's hard. Like that's not for everyone. People, a lot of people want a lot more security. They want a lot more um, stable ground. They want to, you know, have things handed to them. They want things to be neat. Um, I don't, that they would, they'd be really unhappy here. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, you know, helping wrap this up a bit, there's been a lot of discussion recently in, in esports tech and influencers about what they call non-endemic brands coming in. So, you know, the larger brands who who aren't well versed in the esports and tech scenes. And for a lot of those, there's some been some investment, but it's been slow. In you in your position, what kind of advice would you give to a non-endemic brand who might be scared or very cautious about entering the influencer space? And what would you suggest for them to read through and, and what resources should they open the book to to start moving into here? I mean, I think the first thing is, you know, always start with who are they trying to engage? So if it happens to be this audience that also loves esports and gaming, then then they've got to start with what do they care about and be prepared to find a way to say, like, how am I helping this um, whole whole thing happen? Not how do I bring it to me? It's like, how do I go to them? Um, what's going to drive value here? So, and, it, you know, this is why we're seeing the opportunity that we are is that we do have those indemnic brands. We, ha- we, you know, we've, we've been working with all these awesome brands for a very long time that don't know how to play in this space, but actually really they don't know how to play in any space because historically it was just by big bets on media and own all the eyeballs and they could literally do that through, you know, just influencing through um you know, frequency of, of brand, being in front of a brand. They can't do that anymore. It's just that world's just gone away. You know, PR, like what is PR? People follow people. They don't necessarily go. Most of the journalists um, are now independent. So it's it's all based on like what are mm. you writing that people care about and it's getting the most engagement or what are you creating? What video have you produced? You know, what are you, what are, what, you, know, what are you streaming? Like what is actually of, of value to someone? So brands just need to just work out how to play and make that happen and just let really good creators um you know that that are very good at telling those stories and creating those great experiences allowing them to do it and actually seeing they have to invest in it yeah and i think you know as a bit of a summary looking into a lot of your answers today seem to seem to be based around one one very common aspect and a lot of it is focusing on your product and also what are you as a company or a person offering and and how are you different to others would you say that the crux of business comes down to a lot of that in many cases absolutely i think it comes back to the what's driving value what do people care about what's driving value because that's where people are prepared to spend their own money right 
or their time or whatever is the value thing that you're trying to 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 get them to engage or share. So, yeah, like what do they care about? That's all you have to focus on. Yeah, so wrapping up the big 009, is there any other things that you'd like to mention at all? Just keeping in mind that, you know, the, the audience listening into here is is a wide range of game developers to content creators and people who are looking to enter the industry and, you know, directors who are looking to move up into the C-level. Mm. I mean, so the first thing, I'm really happy for anyone to, to connect with me, whether it's on LinkedIn or in social. Um, I try and be very generous. I, I try and answer everything that I ever get asked. Um you know, like I, I actually really care and I like listening and learning and, you know, really interested in in, in what people care about myself. So, um, but I th- look, I just think if you want to make something happen, you're responsible for it, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. Awesome. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in to episode 009 of the Business in Games podcast. Who would you like us to talk to? Contact us at Business in Games on Twitter and facebook.com forward slash business in games. If you'd like to discuss anything you heard today or previously in any of our casts, you can head over to the Oceania Esports and Gaming Business Group on Facebook. You can follow Emma at Emolo Russo on Twitter, or you can follow me myself at Smithy Mayo on Twitter or facebook.com forward slash Smithy Mayo. Once again, thanks for listening in and we'll catch you in the next cast. Here at Business in Games, we exclusively use Roe AU for all of our audio engineering needs. If you're looking for voiceovers, audio editing or on location recording, contact him today at Roe underscore AU on Twitter.